Turn with me this morning in your Bible to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I'm going to commence reading at verse 16 and we'll read to verse 26. Let's hear the word of God. John 16 verse 16. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves of what I said a little while, and ye shall not see me? And again a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice, and ye shall have be sorrowful. But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs. But I will show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name. I, and I say not unto you, that I will pray the Father for you. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text today is taken from John 16 and in the verse 20. It reads as follows, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And my theme today I've entitled How to Turn Sorrow into Satisfaction. You'll forgive me, but I like alliteration. It helps me to remember. I've just compiled this wee message when I come home about 11 o'clock last night. I'd love more time to work on it. Uh, just uh, pray that you'll uh, bear with me as we share a few thoughts. In John chapter 14, right through to verse 16 to the very end, we have the final words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. You've got to remember that 14, 15, and 16 was on the last night of our Lord's earthly existence just before his death the next day on Calvary. So, you see, this is his final message. And what a message it is. 
of instruction, hope and encouragement, things that were going to happen. You see, the Lord Jesus at the heart of this message told them that he was going to leave them. In a little while you shall see me no more. That meant he was going to go to the cross and die and, and his body taken from them. And um, he, he was going to die that horrible death of crucifixion. And you see, in this upper room discourse, he's speaking very plainly and clearly to them. And even though he was giving them hope and comfort and instruction, at the very thought of Christ leaving them, they were plunged into great distress of heart and confusion of mind. What does all this mean? Yet a little while, uh, uh, and ye will not see me. He was well aware of their fear and their anxiety and their uncertainty. I believe that he felt that in his own heart. And in order to prepare them for that deep pain and sorrow that they were going to be plunged into within the next 24 hours, remember they were to witness his arrest in the garden, his betrayal by one of their own, Judas, who pretended to be a disciple. It is unjust trial, the cruel mocking, the beating, the scourging at the hand of the soldiers, then the horrible agonizing death of crucifixion. That would stay with them, but that would greatly affect them. That would plunge them into deep sorrow. You see, in their estimation, their wee world came crashing down. They had put their hope in him as the promised Messiah. They had staked their future that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the, the King of Israel. He was their Redeemer, their Deliverer, their Savior. You see, the previous week, remember, when he rode into Jerusalem, what did the crowd shout? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The King's here. And within a week, it all changed. It came to a sad end. You see, he knew that he was going to bleed and die on the cross. It was for this reason he had come into the world. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And, and of course, when he was born, he, he suffered. And as he lived, he suffered. And as he died, he suffered. And we're going to see that. But, but he knew that his suffering was going to have an impact on their hearts and minds. And they too were going to enter into a deep valley of pain and suffering in light of his suffering. And yet the reality is that this was all part of the plan and purpose of the Lord for his disciples. Just as the Savior entered into suffering, so the saints too would go through the valley of suffering. And if you're in a valley of suffering and sorrow right now, Trials have come, tears have wound up. Remember, in that valley experience, there's a message for you. And the message is this, verse 16. He says, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. I was home last night about 11 o'clock from Acton. I was sitting at the table, I was in the house by myself. And I said, Lord... I'm going to preach tomorrow with your grace and help. Lord, I need a word. And there was one word came to mind, and I just wrote it down, and it was the word sorrow. And I said, Lord, what does that word mean? And immediately, as I opened the Bible, John 16 and verse 20 jumped up. But your sorrow, 
shall be turned to joy. Hence the theme, how to turn your sorrow into satisfaction. I gave myself to prayer for a wee while. Few thoughts came to mind. I pulled a few books down and I quickly looked at them and I scribbled together a few thoughts. And I said as I went to bed, probably about one o'clock this morning, Lord, you can turn it all round. You can turn sorrow into satisfaction and joy. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Bear with me for uh, 20 minutes or so. I want you to think, first of all, of the pain of sorrow. Look at the text. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and demand, and ye shall be sorrowful. Do do you see that? Now, Now, the words, verily, verily, young people, mean truly, truly. And the verily, verilies in John's gospel are very, very important. It's, it's a double truth. It's like, I'm telling you the truth, and then adding again, and I'm telling you the truth. So you're really emphasizing it. The Lord Jesus was speaking of something that's sure and certain, something that was going to come to pass, something that was going to happen. And what was he telling them immediately was going to happen in their lives? Look at the text. That ye shall weep and lament, and ye shall be sorrowful. See, the Lord Jesus had just told them, a little while and ye shall not see me. And a little while and ye shall see me again. And remember, these are grown men. These are his disciples. They've been with them for three and a half years, and they were confused. They, They didn't understand. And yet how patiently he bore with them how kind and gentle he was with them he didn't scold them he wasn't cross he wasn't upset and even though they failed to pray and ask the Lord for wisdom and help just to understand what does that actually mean and of course you see commentators are still confused today as I found out Um, some have written things that I would have to say aren't right You see, I believe that if you look back at verse 16, it says, A little while and ye shall not see me. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus going to the cross. That's a reference to the horrible death of crucifixion. And what the Lord Jesus meant when he said that ye shall weep and lament was this, that the disciples were going to weep and lament as they would see the Lord Jesus going to the cross. Now remember, he's the promised Messiah the king of Israel, their saviour, their deliverer. And they see him arrested by the Roman soldiers and the mob. They see one of their own betray him. They, through Peter, hear about the abuse, because remember Peter warmed himself at the fire when the Lord Jesus was in the house of Caiaphas. And then at the pavement called Gabbatha, the abuse that was meted out to Christ. And then the agony of Calvary, because remember, they were afar off. Could you imagine the 11 disciples in particular seeing the actual crucifixion? And the Lord Jesus is saying to them, when I am being put to death, you're going to weep and you're going to lament. And my enemies, well, they're going to rejoice over my death. I looked up the meaning of the word lament. It means a deep sorrow caused by a dirge. In other words, sorrow caused by death. Keep in mind, as I've said, this is the last night of his earthly pilgrimage. And he's on his way to the cross. 
And if we compare scripture with scripture, we know that when he was on his way to the cross, there was a company of women following him. If you look at Luke 23, it says in verse 37, um, it's 27, yes, Luke 23, 27, and there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. You see, these women that followed him, they, they were upset. This lament, this wailing, it denoted sorrow and sympathy and sadness. They, they, they were following the Lord to Calvary and they, they were so sad at him being cruelly treated as he was forced to carry the cross. They could see the crown of thorns and the beaten body and the blood stained uh, uh, on his body. And, and they were singing his funeral lament. They, they were singing that funeral dirge. So the disciples were affected. Ye shall weep and lament. You're going to be plunged into deep sorrow because of my death. Let's remember this morning the Lord Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's not what Isaiah 53 says. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, there was a major part of our Lord's earthly life spent experiencing human sorrow and grief. His life was really a veil of tears. It started in his birth, no place for him in the end. Uh, it started when he was two. We remember whenever uh, Herod uh, the Great um, ordered the death of all children, males under two years of age, Rama weeping for her children. It continued right throughout his life, times they wanted to murder him, right up to his crucifixion at, at Calvary. And those in Christ, by virtue of being in saving union with him, they also must taste grief and sorrow and tears. There's a literal weeping. Tears and lament are real. There's a spiritual weeping in our hearts and minds. We're sent into turmoil. And it's not just the apostles. It's not just the woman lamenting the actual death of Christ. I believe this applies to all of God's people. Because of being in Christ. Because of our saving union with him. Because of our identification with him. We learn to experience what Paul called the, the fellowship of his sufferings. And part of that fellowship of his sufferings is his rejection of the world. And, and the world crucifying Christ. And, and not only his rejection of Christ and his cross work, but his rejection of us. Because we're identified with Christ. We want to uh, speak up for Christ. And we want to expose their sin and say how, how wrong it is. When we think of sorrow, we have to think of sorrow due to the cross. Also think this morning of sorrow due to circumstances. The great Alexander White said this, we often hang heavy, thread, heavy weights on the thinnest of threads. You see, where do we hang our happinesses? Where do we hang our joys? Do we not hang them in fragile things? Our health? What happens when that leaves us? Our friends? What happens when they forsake us and betray us? On our children? On our homes? On our job? On our money? On our possessions? Are, are these things not so easily taken from us or 
Maybe it would be better to say we're so easily taken from them. Because there comes a point in life when we leave it all behind. And these wonderful blessings, and they are wonderful blessings, and I'm not minimizing them for one minute. Yet, they're not permanent. They're not real in that permanent sense. They're only transitory things. They're, they're, they're uncertain things. It's not the basis for lasting joy. It's not the foundation for lasting joy because our circumstances can change. The health can change. Friends can change. Children grow up and move on. Um, homes can decay. You could lose your job. Your, your wealth can be taken. Possessions can be broken. We, we are well aware that any major loss in a family or in an individual is painful. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Remember what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, and he tells us there in verse 8 and 9 that something that's very, very um, true to life, something that's real to human experience. And this is what he says Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And oftentimes when you're put into sorrow, a major loss, the devil uses it to attack us, to attack our, 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 our identity as God's children, to, to attack our, our identity and our faith in Christ. I was thinking last night, you know, being a Christian, even a Christian pastor, doesn't protect us from weeping and, and lamenting. Weeping and lamenting is part and parcel of the Christian life. Isn't it so sad that many think that their faith in Christ will protect them from major suffering and tragedy? It doesn't. And then when major tragedy comes, then they think, well, Lord, you've abandoned us. You've left us. Did he not say to his disciples as part of this uh, talk in the upper room, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Has there not been those in life's journey in the church who have claimed healing by faith and then it hasn't happened to their body or the body of their loved ones and they have plunged into guilt and thought, oh, there's a problem with my faith. He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, we know that we have faith in God, but let's remember what we asked him to do always is subject to his will. You know, it's not unspiritual to grieve or to weep. It's not unspiritual to feel deep sorrow and grief in times of loss when your loss is painful. It's not unscriptural. We read in the Bible, Jesus wept. Remember, we live in a fallen world. Death is the penalty for sin. Christ, we know, has taken away the sting of death. But he hasn't taken away death itself. The fact of death is still real. The hand of death is still real. And, and we're not insulated from such deep sorrow and pain. Someone has said, and I read it last night, the deeper the love, the deeper the sorrow. And the deeper we love a loved one, when death comes unexpected, that grief is real, it's felt in the soul, and it's very painful. Now, even though our Grief is different from the world because our ultimate hope is in Christ. And remember the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those comforting words in verse 13 and verse 14, and this is what he says. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. You see, the Lord Jesus, remember, as the man of sorrows, Jesus wept. He's acquainted with our grief. It's not ungodly to grieve or to weep. Let me tell you this story. You've heard of Campbell Morgan. He was a congregational preacher. And I've just discovered this about his life. Whenever he was age 30, his wife lost a little daughter to death, his daughter. Forty years later, he's preaching on the subject of Jairus' daughter. He's 70 now, and of course, like him, I would like to preach on until I'm 70. I'm be a bit over it if that's the Lord's will, but 40 years with the Savior. He said to the congregation as we measure time, 40 years with Jesus, my daughter's been in heaven. Now listen to this. And I have missed her every day since her death. And he said, what has sustained me? But his word, believe only. He said, that has been the strength all these years. Whenever he was 31, one year after her death and the anniversary, he said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I've discovered there's no accidents in the journey. It's all under God's government and God's plan. And he discovered those 40 years and more the sustaining help of God's grace. He was a godly man. And maybe you're here this morning and like myself, like the McLaughlin, the Liggett, the Bell, the um, Black family, you've experienced disappointments in life. Things have happened not as you planned. And remember the road to Emmaus experience. It, 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 it wasn't as they had planned it. We had hoped. But their dreams were shattered. Maybe you've been plunged into despair and darkness and difficulty. Like these disciples, you're confused. You can't understand things. They could understand the reign of Christ, but not his rejection, not his refusal. They could understand the crown. We want them crowned king of kings, but not the cross first. They, they couldn't understand the cross. They, they ignored the scriptures like Psalm 22, the spoke of the cross. That was part of the reason for their despair, their darkness. They didn't pray and seek the Lord. Isn't it also true that man's depravity can plunge us into sorrow and pain, the reign of evil people? Think of these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, gloating over his death, glad that he is dead, and the devil at the back of it. Death itself, when it comes, it's like an enemy. We live in a fallen world, subject to sin, subject to death, prone to sin, prone to experience the painful consequences of sin. Here's the pain of sorrow. Now, very quickly, I want you to think of something else here that caught my eye. The promise of satisfaction. What did he say? If you look at the text. But your sorrow shall be turned to joy. How could it be turned to joy? Why could it be turned to joy? Here's the answer. They had a sensitive savior. As I've said, the disciples were confused. They were slow to understand. They couldn't think it through. Yet in a little while, ye shall see me no more. What did that mean? And yet how patient he was with them. How 
wonderfully sensitive he was to their need. He bore with them. He, he wanted to reassure them. His, his treatment wasn't cold and mechanical. He, he didn't say, the guys, book up here. Listen up, you're stupid. You're thick. It, it wasn't anything like that. He bore patiently with them to get them to explain. There's a time of weeping and lamenting coming. But when you see me again, it'll be all turned to joy. He's a sensitive saviour. He's a sympathising saviour. Remember, he's the suffering saviour. We've already been with him in the garden last week in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, when we had the little time of communion. The Lord Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken thee? I would never see the film, The Passion of Christ, and refuse to watch it. It's a very violent, brutal movie. But I was thinking just last night of the in-person shock of the disciples who witnessed the brutal treatment of the Lord Jesus. And that's only his physical sufferings. We could think about his mental sufferings, his, his, his sufferings unto death as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. But he was not just a sensitive saviour, a sympathising saviour, a suffering saviour. He was also a sovereign saviour. You see, it was appointed that Christ must die and shed his blood in the tree. A horrible event, an event that must happen in the purposes of God. But what happened following his crucifixion? There was the resurrection. And that's what he meant when he said, and again a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. He was thinking about his resurrection. He was thinking about his ascension. And that's what I want you to focus on. And you see, if we're to understand the cross right, when we understand the cross, who died, the way he died, why he died, when he died, where he died, then we'll realize that the resurrection story following his death and burial is the key. See, our belief in the resurrection of the literal body of the Lord Jesus and all that it means for his people is the key, the cornerstone of the great message of the Christian gospel. It's not just that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me and see the Savior crucified, but see him resurrected, see him arose. He is not here, he is risen from the dead, as he said, and, and to see him ascended. At God's right hand, there to reign and rule in the power of an endless life for us, his people. You see, it all rests in the resurrection. The body of Jesus risen out of the tomb. Isn't that what Paul emphasized whenever he said about the resurrection? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to verse 17. And if Christ be not raised. So think about it. If it didn't happen, then... Your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. He, he's, he's making an argument. See, the resurrection is the foundation stone. It all rests in that. Yes, it's great that we focus on Christ crucified and his blood shedding and the work of redemption. But the father accepted the sacrifice. And to prove it, he raised his son from the dead and restored him to his glory at the right hand. You see, if you're here this morning and you're like me and your heart's in pain, you just want to burst into tears as you think of life's events that unfolded in the family. You're confused and defeated and full of sorrow. Let's get our eyes on the risen Christ. 
on the great mediator on the throne, to think of his name and all that that name means. I sat last night after maybe midnight and I was asking myself, well, David, how can you be happy in these circumstances? How can you know fullness of joy? And the thought just come because Jesus is alive. He was truly dead, yes, but he truly arose and he's alive forevermore. Let me just ask, do you know and love the Lord? Is he with you on the journey of life? Yes, full of sorrow and pain, but you've got the Savior. Think of the hymn, I must have the Savior with me. Is he with you this morning? Have you received him? Is he your Lord and Redeemer? And when you uh, think of the, the promise of the Savior here, your sorrow shall be turned to joy. What turns it to joy? It's the Savior himself with you. A, a, a sensitive, sympathizing, suffering, but also a saving, sovereign Savior who's risen from the dead. Not only have you got the promise of satisfaction here and the pain of sorrow, but there's another wee thought come to mind. And it's this, the power of the Savior. As I thought last night in closing, the Lord uses sorrow. God can work a miracle in the midst of the sorrow. He can turn the grief to glee. He can turn the sorrow to satisfaction. See, God uses sorrow to bring us to Christ. Teaches us a knowledge of him. Can use the sorrow to cause us to repent of our sin and realize where we're at in a spiritual way. And, and, and God can so change and transform our hearts and lives and cause us to know and love and follow him. And maybe you're here and you're listening and you feel grief and pain right now. And you're not a true Christian. You're not a true follower of Christ. Maybe you're only a pretending follower. I would urge you to realize and recognize where you're at and turn to Christ in your need of him because God can use sorrow to bring people to Christ and has done it. You think of the many people that come to Christ through the death of the late Matthew Arnold and we had a lovely wee text from Phyllis uh, after uh, Molly had gone home to be uh, with the Lord Jesus in heaven. And a lovely wee way she said, and Matthew will keep them cracked till we all get there. I just thought of that. Molly and Matthew, it's in you having a yarn in heaven. God uses sorrow to teach us about life's reality. Isn't there a day we're born? It's a day we die. And what's in between the two days? No matter how long life is, it's just a journey. And as Wilford was saying to me yesterday in Molly's yard, we're having a cup of tea, and oftentimes the road can be very rocky. It can be smooth, it can be bumpy, it can be rocky. There can be, there can be pitfalls and dangers times we fear we're, we're going to go over life's cliff edge. Do you see it now? Can, can you sense it now? Life's realities comes home, you see, in the midst of sorrow. That's why the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. God uses sorrow to help us to rest in the promises. Hasn't he left us some lovely promises? What about the, the promise in Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. With me, that's the center part of that psalm. The good shepherd with us in the journey. Listen to Isaiah 43 and 2, When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee. 
And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Isn't that tremendous? See, God uses sorrow to draw us closer in fellowship with him. Here's the world that rejects Christ. But even though a world rejects him, we can grow to be like him through the process of suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. He learned obedience through suffering, even though he never sinned. He, he gave himself in submission to a life of obedience to the Father's will. And when Christ is rejected by an ungodly world, as he says here, the world shall rejoice at my death, we feel it. That rejection of him affects me, affects you. If they rejected him when he was born, there was no room for him. And rejected him through Herod the Great when he was but two. And there was weeping and Ramah because of the murder of the children. And no doubt it had a big impact on those women. He carried that right up to Calvary. And all the events around his life and cross, there was weeping and there was lament. And there was troubled hearts and there was tear-filled eyes. And yet the father planned it all. And, and we feel that. And when our loved ones reject Christ and the gospel and refuse to listen, we feel that. But what can we do in the midst of that rejection? Don't neglect your Bible. Don't neglect the Lord. Don't neglect the place of prayer. Don't neglect the house of God. Because this world is temporary. This world is passing. Here's the power of the Savior. You know, one of our greatest sorrows, and God uses it, is to bid farewell to a loved one. See them lowered into the grave. Placing the coffin there. Just to realize that one day death will come for me. No death could come swiftly for any of us. Come without warning. Death could come slowly. Think of those that suffer bodily pain in the hospital. Lingering for weeks and months and even into years. Think of some with motor neuron disease that I know of. You know, the young can die, could come at middle-aged, come when you're old. We could have a few moments, we could have many years, but there'll come a day when we'll have to separate and part. And it's not easy to part. And yet the reality is, if our loved ones die in Christ, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, it's not the end. Exiting this world for glory. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Body put into the ground to await a new body and resurrection glory. Oh, let me just ask you, if there's sorrow for the saint, even in death, and God uses it to speak to us and bring us to Christ, to teach us about life's realities, to rest in the promise, to draw us into closer fellowship and communion with him, and knowing that it's not easy to depart a loved one from this scene of time, then think as I finish the sorrow of the sinner. On life's journey, rejecting Christ, refusing to repent, not realizing that sin brings pain. You see, sin is the mother of sorrow. Genesis 3, 17. Where is it first mentioned? Genesis 3, verse 17. Sorrow come into the world because of sin. It's when it's first mentioned. So you think of all the suffering of sorrow in the world. It's due to sin and how easily we forget that. And yet many sorrows for the transgression, the, the, the uh, way of the transgressor's heart. 
in the midst of transgression and iniquity and sin, that sin brings its own pain, its own heartache. And yet people are not happy. They're so discontent. They're so dissatisfied. And they don't realize that that sin that they embrace, that's the cause of their sorrow. And I say to everyone out of Christ this morning, turn to the Savior. Repent of your sin. And put your faith and trust in him. And allow him to turn every sorrow into joy. The Lord bless you today. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening.